0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Ontario legislature is back to work this week for the first time since early June. As Premier Ford hits the reset button with his throne speech, are the voters ready to forgive and forget? In a potentially forward in the global fight against the pandemic, drug maker Merck says its experimental pill for people sick with COVID-19 reduced hospitalizations and deaths by half. What could an antiviral pill like this mean for the fight against COVID? And the federal court has dismissed Ottawa's attempts to appeal a pair of rulings about providing services and compensation to First Nations children. David Naylor, one of the lawyers representing the First Nations, will join us to talk about that. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts Now. Today, on the Bill Kelly Show, on 900 CHML. Supreme Court was busy last uh, week with a couple of important decisions. One, uh, to do with the compensation for First Nations children who attended or were forced to attend residential schools. The other to do with uh, the Ontario government and their uh, attempt a couple of years ago to reduce the Toronto City Council size. We're going to get into that in a couple of seconds, too. But speaking of uh, Queen's Park, uh, they're back to work today. Steve Henniger has the details. The speech outlining the renewed agenda for Premier Doug Ford's Conservative government will be delivered by Lieutenant Governor Elizabeth Dowdswell. Ford's spokeswoman has said it will focus on the fight against COVID-19 as the government's top priority. Meanwhile, NDP leader Andrea Horvath says she wants to see a plan to hire more nurses and personal support workers, reduce class sizes, and support small businesses. While Liberal leader Stephen DeLuca's priorities include safe classrooms, signing a childcare deal with the federal government, and paid sick days. Steve Henniger, the Canadian Press, Toronto. As a matter of fact, as we speak, uh, the Lieutenant Governor uh, does, does well is uh, making that speech from the throne at uh, the legislature and uh, we're going to get some reaction to that and uh, some of the promises that are being made. To talk about all this stuff, I'm uh, pleased to welcome back to the program Richard Brennan, a former journalist uh, with the Toronto Star who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many, many years. Uh, Badger, great to have you show, on the show again today. Hope you're doing well today. I'm terrific, Bill. How are you? Good. Is a throne speech like this like the first day of school? Is there excitement around the halls of Queen's Park uh, as we speak?
1: No, there, there's a little bit because it it, it's uh, to set the tone, and this is an important tone speech because, you know, we have an election next year, and uh, next June, I guess, and so this really sets the tone of where the government wants to head and, you know, what kind of promises uh, they're likely to make and, and whether they'll be able to live up to them or not. But it, it just gives the public an idea of where... I guess their, their head is at at this point in time.
0: Well, I know you're, you're looking at, at where they want to go on here. Is it also an opportunity for them to, to kind of hit the reset button and say, okay, forget all that stuff that, that was, was so controversial last time, let's look forward and not back? It's been a while. I mean, they, they haven't been sitting since early June, and now here we are into October. Uh, you know, do, do voters forgive and forget and just move on from here?
1: Well, you know, I think uh, the reset button is an overused uh, (laughs) phrase because, you know, people don't forget. I know they say, you know, voters have very short memories. But in this case, the government's going to have to convince people that they're on solid ground, that where they're going is they're, not, they're going to stop, you know, uh, lurching from one crisis to the next and actually govern and give people some of the things, you know, the stability that people expect from the government. Whether they can do it or not is another question. You know, we've got a fourth wave or we're going to get a fifth wave. I mean that's the that's the unpredictable part of of governing is what the outside forces, and this this is an opportunity for them to try and tell people well we're sorry about all the things you did they won't go into great detail because they don't want to remind people of all the things they did wrong, but they'll they'll say well, you know this is we're uh, full steam ahead as steady as we go here we are and we're going to. We're going to deal with the pandemic, and we're going to get the economy back on track and, and all those good things. And, and basically, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wish list. That's what it is.
0: I'll get back to the COVID thing in just a second, because you're right, that's that's going to dominate at least for the next few months at least. But I want to talk about a couple of the other things, too. And and one of them, as I mentioned just at the beginning of our, our discussion here, uh, was the decision by the Supreme Court about, uh, well, the Ford government's attempt, and well, successful attempt, I guess it was, uh, to reduce the size of Toronto City Council. As we know, the Toronto Council uh, sued, the city of Toronto sued uh, the Ford government and said you can't do that. Uh, basically, by split decision, five to four, the narrowest of margins, the court said, yeah, they can. Are you surprised by that?
1: Not really, because the province, you know, it it dictates to the municipalities. Always has, always will. Under our, you know, our, you know, democracy we have, and particularly in the way Canada runs. But they they are the overseer, if you will, and they can dictate and tell the municipalities what they're going to do here in planning. And we see that in Hamilton right now, where they're telling. Hamilton, well, you can't restrict growth because we say so. Well, we'll see how that goes. But, you know, so, yes, I I think, of course, Toronto would have loved to have, you know, had it gone in their favor because they reduced it dramatically. I mean, Toronto City Council needed to be reduced. I, I don't think there's any question about that. It was insane. But they reduced it to the point where now... You know council members represent huge areas, and the council members are tell you themselves that they have no contact, they have no feel for the people you know in in their in wards, if you will, because they' it's, they are so large they just don 't have that personal touch that they used to have when they were smaller.
0: And and I know that one of the arguments that the government used at the time when they were when they did reduce was they said, well, we're going to save taxpayers millions and millions of dollars. Well, that didn't happen as not. we predicted. You and I talked about that. I still remember that conversation. Said all that's going to happen here is the councils that get elected are just going to hire more administrative staff and support staff uh, to make up the difference, which is exactly what they did. As a matter of fact, it's costing more uh, for the Toronto taxpayers now than than the previous style of, of city council. So uh, you know that that's a, 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 a white elephant uh, that, to suggest that okay, that we're going to save money on this it's it's really it's it's up to the individuals on the councils to do that and they have that power to simply say well we're just going to hire more staff which is what they did so i which begged uh, one of the reasons i guess why the toronto, city of toronto sued them because they said look at what's the net benefit here but your point's well taken uh, they did it because they can uh the city of toronto the city of hamilton the city of london every community in this city uh exists at the pleasure of the provincial government they signed the charter that says yes hamilton you can be a city yes london London, you can be a city. And by the way, this is the way it's going to be. You want regional government? We don't care. We're going to give it to you anyway. You know, we, you want to reduce council, you want amalgamation, and on and on it goes. It, it, I don't think a city has ever won an argument against the government like that, have they? Not
1: like that, no. Uh, they may win some, you know, smaller, you know, uh, skirmishes, but not not when it comes to big stuff like that. We've seen it time and time again. Like you said regional government, you know. Did Dundas want to be part of Hamilton at the time? They said absolutely not, but too bad for you. And and that's and that's the way it goes, uh, like it or not. Uh, I, I think what's stuck in the craw, just not people living in Toronto, but elsewhere, is that it was done in such a vindictive fashion. The reduction of Toronto City Council. He, he uh, Doug Ford had a hate on for Toronto Council for why they how they treated his brother Rob, yeah. and. You know, with all the things he had to do when he came in, all the major uh, economic, you know, uh, pitfalls that lay ahead and things you wanted to do, that was one of the first things he did. Was right in the middle of an election
0: action. campaign. Right in the middle of a municipal yeah, election campaign. Absolutely.
1: And, and it was completely unneeded at that point. He could have done that after the ele- you know, election or, the, you know, the... Uh, the next round of elections but no it, it had to be done right now and had to be done the way i say you know and and that's what really stuck with people you know but the fact is it's you know the supreme court ruled in their favor like you say split decision but uh you know just just the same they, they uh they are a creature of the province the municipalities and then like it or not
0: well and as you and I have talked about in the past, because of that power that the province holds, uh, the city of Toronto was never going to win this. Even if the Supreme Court had sided with the city of Toronto, uh, the, the Ford government just simply would have reintroduced the legislation, said, "Okay, fine, that was illegal, but now we're going to do it again, uh, yeah. and now it's going to be legal." So th- it was going to happen one way or another. They were going to reduce the size of council. So it seemed all, like almost a, a, an exercise in futility. But there it goes. let I wanted to get one other element yeah. of this. And two, your your former colleague Rob Benzie wrote about this in the Star. Uh, you know new beginnings thrown from speech from the throne etc etc here's our agenda uh one of the challenges i guess that the doug ford has right now is to try to keep his team in line i mean there've been some problems uh with some of the backbenchers uh, some of the cabinet ministers even uh, through the course of uh you know battling covid uh where there were some disagreements and some of them kind of got ugly uh how is he going to be able to do that? I mean, you if you want to win an election, you've got to keep your, your guys in a row. You've got to keep the ducks in a row. You've got to have everybody on the same page. Uh, can he do that with this this team that he's got now?
1: Oh, I think he can. And yeah, basically the message is going to be, Bill, don't do anything stupid. don't you know, don't say go on, on you know, don't go on Twitter and say something ridiculous. Uh, keep your nose clean. And, uh, you know, and look after, your, your, you know, the folks back home, and that's going to be the message. I mean, you never, you know, I mean, it's like herding cats. You can't control everything. But I'll tell you, he's going to make it very pointed to his uh, caucus and cabinet that, you know, I will not brook any kind of madness, period.
0: Uh and, and Rob also went into some detail about what they may be doing here. Of course, these people all speak on, you know, the uh, idea of anonymity because nobody wants to be, hey, I'm going to tell you what the government's going to do here, but they tell you what the government's going to do anyway. You, every guy at Queen's Park there, as you know, has to have their sources. Uh, but apparently uh, there's going to be some attacks against Stephen Del Duca and Andrew Horvath in the upcoming months. I mean, the, the conservative party here at Ontario, the PCs, have a lot of money oh and and you got to figure they're going to spend a lot of it even before the the election. writ comes down uh, to get people. I guess first of all thinking about the election, and B thinking that well you have no choice but to put the Ford government back in because the other guys just don't have their act together. That's that's going to be the message I think.
1: Oh absolutely. I mean he's got more money than the Pope uh, right now in terms of you know what what they've been able to collect in various dinners and and contributions of this and that. So he's going to. You know the government is going to have lots of cash to throw around, and they'll run attack ads and and that you know uh, uh, criticizing the opposition leaders, and and let's face it, I mean, you know, he, is is it likely he'll get back in? I think it is. I know it's a long way off, but let's the liberal leader doesn't even sit in the legislature, mm-hmm. and and. You know andrea has has been around for a long time now, and is, is she offering anything new? Can you look to the leader of the and uh, the democratic party and say this is new and improved and you know and they offer a different approach? Well, I don't see it. you, you know things 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 can happen, but at this point in time, I think you know i I think he's uh, you know in a pretty good position to Maybe certainly not get as many seats as he did last time, but certainly in a position to hold his own in the next, uh, the
0: next election. Well, you can also see the the strategy's already started here. Um, and, and maybe one of the the key elements of that was the fact that he basically took a back seat during the federal election, which premiers don't usually do. Uh, but he, I guess, saw the tea leaves and figured, look, it, you know, Justin Trudeau's probably going to get reelected. I don't want to be the guy that's going to be yelling and screaming, don't vote for these guys, and then have her turn around and vote. The, the tradition here in Ontario most of the time has been, if you got a Liberal government in Ottawa, it's usually a PC government in Ontario. It, it, it rarely happens where you have... Both, both, I guess, McGinney was the uh, the exception to that. But we seem comfortable as Ontarians with that sort of thing. And I, I think Ford saw that and just said, okay, I'm just going to back off here.
1: Well, yeah, but the question is how much longer are we going to have a liberal government in Ottawa? Well, who knows? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're going to be looking at another election in two more years. No, I mean, that's certainly been historically the case. I don't know if it had the kind of weight that it, it used to have, but he's, he just, he's, in, he's in a position now where, you know, uh, he's, done, he's done a lot of things, I think, that are questionable and a lot of things that are controversial. And he's been overly reactive and not instead of being proactive. So these are all things he's going to have to deal with in the next few months to convince, convince the public that, you know, he's just, just not a flash in the pan, that his election last time was, was you know, just a, he was a lucky strike he's going to have to convince the voters of ontario he is the person his government is the government to get past to get past the uh, covid and get in you know get ontario back on its feet again and get the you know the economy roaring
2: is he, attempt, that, you know? is he going to attempt?
0: Is he going? I know we got a lot of time between now and, and the election in June to t- to get into some of the specifics about this, but is there going to be an attempt here to try to portray him as a, as a middle of the road conservative? As a, I don't think he can ever actually uh, say, yeah, he's a Bill Bill Davis progressive conservative. I don't think he's ever going to go that way. But you know, when he got elected the first time, uh, he courted the extreme right. Uh, you know, the religious right. You know, the sex ed program was a, a controversial issue. A couple of other things like that that he seemed to gravitate to, thinking, I need that people, those people. I need. That That base right now, Uh, are they going to switch gears right now and try to move a little more to the middle? I mean, still as conservatives, but more to the middle.
1: Oh, you know what? Campaign from the left, you know, government from the middle. Yeah, and uh, I,
0: I, I it would be
1: a huge mistake of his if he starts embracing, you know, these these, you know, uh, different groups that would, you know, that have, you know, don't have uh, views that the public, you know, shares. And these right wing groups or whatever. I mean, I don't. I think he is uh, capable of learning. I think he has learned that that's not going to get you anywhere. That's not going to get you elected. You know, he didn't win the last election. The, you know, the liberals got booted. And, you know, I I know the you know conservatives will tell you what a great campaign they did and all that. You know what? You just vote governments out, and that's what happened last time. And we'll see. Well, we'll, you know, we'll see where he governs from, but again, I don't think he's going to be approaching these various groups and and, and catering them, because uh, if you do, there's going to be a backlash.
0: Yeah and the last thing you want is is something like that going into an election and like you say the wild card here is once again going to be covid uh you know the one criticism i think the 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 consistent criticism i know we're almost out of time here uh has been that he's gone and done a lot of things but he's done them in half measures you know they dragged him kicking and screaming into this idea about proof of vaccination we're going down that road right now he doesn't seem comfortable with it but you have to wonder if things you know start to tank again and there are some discussions right now that our numbers uh with new cases may go up as uh you know, the weather gets colder. Uh, how he reacts and, and the sorts of policies that he embraces, and when he reacts, I guess, is, is going to be a key factor here.
1: Well, he he's been reactive all the time. I mean, think of the last you know couple of years. I mean, it's just from pillar to post. What you know? What what has you know? Ask yourself what has he been proactive at you know it was we you know we we're going to build a wall around the you know long term care well that didn't happen and we're going to we're going to you know uh, do this we're going to do that and a lot of stuff you know he's been forced his hand's been forced in so many at so many times in so many instances that he has to change that he has to get you know change the game and tell people that you know from now on we'll be proactive and we'll be setting the agenda rather than, you know, various factors doing it.
0: Exactly. Well, it all starts with the throne speech, which is ongoing right now, so lots more to talk about in the days ahead. Uh, Badger, as always, thanks for this. Stay well, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Billy. Bye-bye. Take care. Richard Brennan, of course, who covered Queen's Park for many, many years. Glad to have him on the show today.
3: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: I want to talk about COVID-19 and and the treatments that are coming forward. Now, we already know about the vaccination programs, and uh, we know that uh, that there's some talk now, possibly a booster, which, by the way, is not new information, Uh, contrary to what some folks on social media may be posting. We're told right from the get-go, uh, that in all likelihood, any vaccine that we were going to get was not going to get us, you know, out, out of this for life. There was probably going to have to be some booster, as there is with just all other stuff, too. You know, the, you know you have to get a flu shot every year. You have to get a booster for the the, the your tetanus shots and, and the other things, of course, that have, we miraculously have vaccines now to help us to, to combat, and that's wonderful. And uh, the COVID vaccine is going to fall into that as well, and uh, so we're into that aspect of it. But there's also what happens to people that actually are hospitalized with the COVID. And, uh, and the treatments that are available. And it's one of those stories that doesn't get a whole lot of press, and it should really, uh, because we're starting something brand new. I mean, you know, when this whole thing started back in, in spring of 2020, uh, we didn't know much about the coronavirus, and especially this one, and we didn't know how to treat it. And, and well, we saw the death hole amount as a result of that. Well, there have been, along with the, the, the development of vaccines, a number of treatments that have been developed over the last little while to help people who have been hospitalized, to help them overcome it. And, uh, some rather famous cases, of course, have, have actually occurred since then, where people have been able to to get back into it, not without some long-term concerns and benefits, and and that's a pillar of what we're dealing with right now. And and you know, researchers are trying to develop some sort of a strategy to dare to deal with some of that stuff, the brain fog and some of the uh, possible uh, cardiac uh, concerns that could be raised. But what about people that are hospitalized and getting treated for it? Well, it's a new development over the last little while that was just announced, anyway, by uh, one of the major drug manufacturers called Merck. Uh, they're calling this a game changer. Uh, Drugmaker Merkin now says that it's experimental COVID-19 pill that is sh- showing some promising results. Sandy Salerno has some details.
2: The company released new data today from a clinical trial that shows their COVID-19 pill cut the risk of hospitalization or death from COVID-19 by half. This was in patients recently infected with the virus. The results were so strong that the company says it will ask health officials soon in the U.S. and around the world to green light its use. If authorized, the drug would be the first pill shown to treat COVID-19. Dr. Simon Chakrabarty says like vaccines and boosters, this is another tool in our toolbox that we can use, especially in the early stages of COVID-19 to prevent it from getting severe. We're going to
1: have people who haven't gotten COVID yet, people that get sick from COVID, we have to have a tool for each stage and this is now going to be a very useful one.
2: The data from the study has not been peer-reviewed yet but an independent group of medical experts monitoring the trial recommended stopping it early because the results were so encouraging. Sandy Salerno, Global News.
0: So what are the ramifications of this? And, uh going forward on this because this i think we pretty much come to accept now uh covid's not going away anytime soon and, and any further developments to try to combat this virus uh have to be welcome joining us to talk about all this is dr brian D. Litchley who is uh, an associate professor in pathology and molecular medicine with Ma- mcmaster's immunology research center uh doctor a pleasure to have you back in the program thanks so much for the time today hi no problem uh, hope you're doing well ah so far so good were you surprised by this news doctor um no i would i wouldn't
4: say surprised and I- a lot, of, uh, a lot of folks are trying to come up with some um, drug-based therapy for the actual infection um, with the coronavirus. So this is probably right now an example of another promising um, treatment. Whether or not it'll uh, stand up to further testing, I think, remains to be seen.
0: Well, that's, I guess, one of the cautions we have to uh, accent here, isn't it? I mean, we've got a long way to go. I mean, the the news so far seems quite promising, but as you've told us in the past, there's there's a protocol that needs to be followed here before uh, we can actually say, okay, we're good to go with this.
4: Yeah. um, you know, As as we just heard, the results in this study, which was hundreds, not thousands, of of patients were good enough for them to stop the trial and to... uh, Ask asked for permission to expand on this. Uh, I'd be surprised at this early stage if regulatory bodies would jump to uh, give emergency use um, for, this, for this drug without more testing, but we'll see how that goes. Um, the challenge, if, if, if you listen to what was said there, is that really the way this drug worked best and it had actually failed previously when they tried giving it to people who were already hospitalized and sick. Mm -hmm. It works best um, before they're going to the hospital. So it's almost like you'd have to have a system in place where as soon as somebody gets a positive COVID test, they get referred to somebody who prescribes the drug, and they start taking the drug before they get very sick. That's when drugs like this work best or or, or are able to, to, to show benefit. Um, and that's a bit challenging. There, were, there, there are some flu drugs that are like that, um, that will blunt or, or dampen the effect of the influenza virus, but only if they're given early in the infection. And so those drugs have only been terribly useful in settings like, um, you know, seniors homes where there's a bunch of people together who are at risk and they can spot that they're getting sick, you know, right away or even before they're, they're showing symptoms. And then give them the drug early, and that's when these things work best. Um, how well that can be applied to the
0: general population and, and the COVID-19
4: pandemic remains
0: to be seen. You used a, a, a verb there that I was interested in. You said it would blunt some of the, the symptoms. This doesn't cure you. From, uh, that's my understanding, this isn't a doctor? You Don't take these pills and say, okay, you're, you're, you're good now. Everything's fine. you are gone away. Uh, you still have COVID, but this will, I guess, reduce the symptoms and reduce the impact it's having on the body?
4: Well, yeah, what it does is it slows the virus down. So this is a drug that um, causes, uh, it sort of gives, uh, so the virus has a different genome than us. And so you can come up with a drug that affects its genome more than our genome uh, and and cause a lot of the progeny virus that are made during the early stages of the infection to be me- so messed up that they're not infectious. And so you 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 take the steam out of uh, the infection. But if you look closely at the data from this, even this promising smaller uh, study with hundreds of people that took unvaccinated people from only 7% of them ending up in the hospital versus 14% of them, which is the number if you don't take the drug. So there's still a lot of people going into the hospital mm-hmm. in this trial. And and that's the problem here. We, we need to keep people out of the hospital. The stats for the vaccine are way better than that. So the best way to avoid the hospital is to get a vaccine. And And I worry would be that, um, you know, some people have been hoping that there'd be a treatment so they don't need to take the vaccine. Um, But, you know, these aren't great odds. It's, it's, you know, a 50 percent improvement on your likelihood to be in the hospital. But the best way to stay out of the hospital is to get a vaccine.
0: Yeah, and, and I guess that's the big takeaway from this whole thing, isn't it, doctor? I don't want people thinking, oh, I don't need the vaccine after all now. I'll just pop one of these pills if I'm starting to get some of the symptoms, and everything's going to be fine. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, there's there's still, there's still a lot of gray area here that, that, that has to be worked out, I guess, before we can even determine how how efficient this is going to be. But it, it's not going to stop you from getting COVID uh, to the same extent a vaccine would. That's still the, the number one defense, I would think, is it?
4: It doesn't prevent uptake. What it, ha- what it does is... is- for some people, it'll blunt the infection to a degree they could stay home but still be sick and infectious and give it to other people. But um, that's the best it'll do.
0: And to that point, I guess at this stage, we're not quite sure uh, you know, whether or not, if, if for instance, I would have a positive test, God forbid, and, uh, okay, you're going to try, we're going to practice pill on you. Uh, we don't know how it's going to have an impact on me. I mean, it might blunt it, it might not. Uh, th- th- that's Those numbers aren't really clear at this stage, are they?
4: Well, these numbers say it's a 50-50 that it'll, uh, you know, it's a 50% reduction in your likelihood to end up in the hospital. But you still might. And we don't know how severe the symptoms are. positive news, but, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's early days, A, and B, these drugs um, are hard to use uh, effectively because of how early in the infection they need to be uh, administered. Uh,
0: but By the way, as, as I was reading about this over the weekend, uh, we do, should remind our listeners that uh, there are other treatments available for COVID. I mean, we've mm-hmm. developed some of those over the last little while, but my understanding is uh, most of them have to be, I guess, given through IV, which means you pretty much have to be hospitalized, I guess.
4: Yeah, so, you know, in desperation, um, all those hardworking frontline workers have kind of on the fly under various you know, stressful and overwhelming circumstances, they've managed to find some combinations of, of, you know, pretty powerful drugs that they can apply to people who are quite sick or very sick in the hospital. And so things have improved on that front. But, you know, you still don't want to end up in the ICU with with the Delta variant, because even with, you know, the best medical care, um, people die. So, the The real goal here is to stay out of the hospital, and that's what the system needs. Because if you look at Alberta right now, the problem they have is there's too many people in the hospital,
0: and and these treatments, as you mentioned, are, are, are expensive uh, and I, I guess not readily available. You know, I I guess. One of the ones that we, we're talking about here is I guess that that's part of the protocol they used when Donald Trump uh, was at Walter Reed Hospital when he was kind of, uh, mm-hmm. determined to have this. And, but uh, as they mentioned at the time, not everybody's going to have access to these sorts of, of uh, protocols and these sorts of, uh, of drugs, I guess. So uh, the, the good news here is, is if this does work out then, it's, it's, it's another tool, but it's not going to be the silver bullet that's going to make everything go away, is it?
4: No, no, it's not that, unfortunately. So but we have it's to put another tool that is a, to the you know, the medical community if it if it stands up to further testing. And the more you know, the more arrows you have in your quiver as a physician to you know, the better you can fight some.
0: It also said here that uh, when Merck was doing these studies, and, and as you mentioned, I think our listeners have to remind ourselves that this was not a massive study like uh, some of the vaccine studies that were done. Uh, they said that Merck only studied the drug in people who were not vaccinated. Uh, what what do you take from that? I mean, are those worst-case scenarios? Or, I mean, should we not have had some data about people that were vaccinated that still contracted the virus?
4: Well, if you think of it from the point of view of, of you know, Merck if you want if you have a drug or any company if you have a, you think it might help people stay out of the hospital you need to test that initially in unvaccinated people because they're the people most likely to end up in the hospital right mm-hmm. so in this study 14% of those people end up in the hospital if they're not treated that gives you an opportunity to see if your drug is, is impacting things. If they had included vaccinated people, the vast majority of those people don't end up in the hospital and they wouldn't have been able to, to determine whether or not the drug was improving the situation. It doesn't mean it won't benefit people who have been vaccinated. I think one of the places, like I said, with the flu drugs that you might want to use this this medication is in the setting of seniors who who, who may not even respond well to the third dose, you know, Once you get to a certain age, your immune system isn't what it used to be. And so those people may need this to help their vaccine when they're first infected. And you can spot that sort of in a, in the setting of a long term care facility or something. And you can keep those people out of the hospital.
0: The story I saw here talked about the U.S. administration here, the Food and Drug Administration, uh, and they said that uh, that uh, the, the thumbs up from from that organization could just be weeks away. Uh, based on, on what you're telling us, that there's still a lot of work to be done on that. Are they jumping in the gun a little bit here?
4: Um, I think the media has a little bit um, from what I've read. We'll see. I mean, maybe I'll be surprised, and uh, the data is strong enough and the the backing, the the safety data they have behind it, which of course is hard to see in this many people, um, will convince the FDA to give an emergency approval to at least what they will probably approve is is larger clinical studies um, where it can be more thoroughly tested, whether that will be in the form of some sort of emergency use um, um, authorization or or the approval to go ahead with larger clinical trials, we'll see. But but no matter what, more people are going to get treated with this, of course.
0: Well, it's interesting news, and, and as you say, it's another tool in the kit. It's uh, it's uh, it's not going to be the be-all and end-all on this, but uh, vaccination is still uh, the main uh, way of, of defending, I guess, against this. Uh, but uh, every time we talk about the hospitalizations, and, and your point's well taken, doctor, I think what did they say, over 90% of the people that have been admitted uh, during the, the Delta variant are, are people that are unvaccinated into ICUs, and uh, that's, the, I guess, what we have to take away from this at the same time is that we need to do everything we possibly can uh, to try to to not get there in the first place and not be hospitalized, and vaccinations are the way to go on that. More to come on that, of course, as we talk about booster shots and everything as we get down to the future. Uh, Thank you, as always, Doctor, for the time today and for some perspective on this. It's it's an interesting story, and I think it's it's a good news story, certainly, but uh, I guess we need to remind ourselves that there's still a way to go on this.
4: Yeah, it is a good news story. Um, Maybe I made it sound a bit negative, but uh, time will tell, and we'll we'll soon learn a
0: lot more about this and other treatments so stay tuned exactly well I, i'd rather you were pragmatic <laughs> um, mm-hmm. you know we don't need cheerleading at this stage we need somebody who's going to tell us the facts and, and and as give us a clear understanding of what's going on and we can always count on you to do that thanks so much doctor no problem have a good Take day care. Dr. Brian Litchie, of course, Associate Professor in Pathology and Molecular Medicine with McMaster's Immunology Research Center. And uh, the Merck pill uh, continues with their research. And it would be interesting to see just how the U.S. Food and Drug Administration does respond in the coming weeks about what's going on. They've got some very, very grave concerns there about what's going on in some sections of the United States, especially with hospitalizations. And we're seeing it happen in Alberta, too. So this is uh, certainly welcome news for people that are dealing with those tragic situations.
3: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: We talked about the Supreme Court being pretty busy last week around handing down some decisions. One had to do with the, the provincial government's attempt to try to reduce the Toronto City Council size, and, and they said, yeah, provincial government, yeah, you guys can do that. The other, though, uh, far more wide-reaching and I think far more significant, uh, and that was uh, the court decision to uphold a landmark compensation deal for First Nations children who have been forced to attend uh, residential schools. The court has dismissed Ottawa's attempts to try to appeal a pair of rulings actually. Mia Rabson has some details.
2: Both cases stem from rulings by the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. The first upholds a 2019 decision which ordered the federal government to compensate First Nations kids for chronically underfunding child welfare services on reserves. The second stems from a ruling in November 2020 which expanded the scope of Jordan's principle. That policy is meant to ensure that First Nations kids that need medical or other services don't have to wait while provinces and the federal government fight over who is supposed to pay. The appeals have been criticized as running contrary to the spirit of reconciliation. Mia Rabson, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. Uh,
0: a great deal of consternation about this. A number of people that said, look, at this the government is truly committed to truth and reconciliation. Why are they in court? Uh, and this is not over yet, apparently. There are still some avenues, apparently, for the federal government to follow. So what is the ruling all about, and what are the ramifications of this? Uh, well, to discuss that, we're pleased to welcome to the program David Taylor. Uh, David is one of the lawyers representing the First Nations in this case. Uh, David, thank you so much for the time. Pleasure to have you on the show today. Happy to be here, and thanks for having me. I, 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 gotta tell you, I, I, I'm one of these people too, that not unlike, uh, when we found out that, uh, you know, the, the federal government a couple of years ago was, was taking veterans to court about compensation. Uh, they're talking the talk about truth and reconciliation here, David, but, you know, to actually go to court and say we don't agree with the compensation package, uh, is, was mind boggling to a lot of Canadians. I, I, with that in mind, and of course, with your position, uh, defending, uh, the First Nations in this situation, you're obviously pleased with the verdict, aren't you?
3: Oh, absolutely. And, and to us, it's a common sense ruling. Uh, the government accepted the ruling in January 2016 that it had discriminated against kids uh, for, for, for many, many years. And this is the natural consequence uh, when a finding of discrimination has been made, is that those who were victims of that discrimination are eligible for compensation under the Canadian Human Rights Act. And so, so to us, it's uh, c- certainly confusing. Uh, that the government continues to mount uh, technical legal defenses to something that under its own law, the Human Rights Act, is one of the remedies available to the tribunal in this case.
0: What, what was the gist of, of their stand on this, David, And uh, as, as, as this unfolded? I, I got the sense that they were saying, yeah, we, we, yeah, there should be compensation, but it was the amount, I guess, and, and the people that were going to qualify for this seemed to be. Was, was, is that in, in a nutshell?
3: Uh, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a, uh, either it's more nuts or a bigger nut uh, than, than just <laughs> that, uh, but that's certainly part of it. Uh, so one of the things that they've continuously said is they think that kids uh, should get compensated. Uh, no mention there of parents or caregiving grandparents who are also included in the tribunal's orders. Uh, but one of the things they said is that the tribunal is not the right place for it. It should be done through a class action because uh, they say the tribunal was really dealing with the system and not with the individual's. Uh, but, of course, you know, the Caring Society's position on this has always been, well, sure, you look at the forest, but how, what makes the forest up It's a bunch of individual trees. And the tribunal has a lot of evidence in front of it of uh, a number of the sad stories that have resulted uh, from the discrimination in the system. Uh, and there are other technical defenses, too, that were included by the tribunal uh, in terms of uh, just h- how discrimination can be dealt with and what the tribunal's uh, scope of authority is. Uh, but at the end of the day, the tribunal held, and the federal court agreed, uh, that it's got, it's a flexible system that puts victims first, uh, and that compensation is available to uh, to the victims where the evidence supports it.
0: I find it troublesome that the government tries to cherry pick things from the tribunal decision here. So, yeah, we agree with this, but not with this. I mean, you're, you're either all in or you're not in situations like this. And I found it very frustrating to to hear this. Uh, one of the explanations, and I don't know if this is the official position, but was one of the people involved in, uh, on the government side. And this seemed to be indicating this a couple of months ago that, well, okay this should be some compensation I'm just I'm, I'm just kind of ballparking it here but you know if, if you if you didn't stay in one of these schools uh, then you know if you went home every day but you still went to the school yeah but you shouldn't get compensated as much as somebody who had to stay there uh, which I thought was a rather ridiculous uh, you know de- determination as to who's worthy of this and who's not and, and and who just as they're saying it wasn't the tribunal's place is is the government's role to determine that I, I don't I don't think so
3: Well, and that's one thing the Caring society's always said, is that that this should be a yes-and approach. Uh, If there are some that had more pain and suffering or more long-term impacts than others, then it's always open to the government to take other processes and other approaches to get that compensation to them. And one of the things that's really important to keep in mind with the tribunal decision and and how the federal court upheld it is that what is being compensated for in this case is the removal of the child from the home. And so it's not about what happened to them when they went to a foster home uh, or when they were sent outside of their family off reserve. It was about that severing of the relationship between uh, mom and dad or however the parental configuration was uh, and the kid. And, and that compensation is split in two. There's 20000 for the pain and suffering, the indignity of that discrimination of being taken out of your home as a kid or as a parent having your child removed. And then the other 20,000 is the government knew about this discrimination and had solutions in front of it to fix it and chose not to act for 15 or 16 years. And so really, we're talking about a a single event that all of these victims share in common, which is that removal from the home. And if there's greater harms or greater pain that needs to be compensated for, there are other processes for that, like, like class actions or those kinds of things.
0: Are, are those class actions uh, inevitable too? I mean, this, this ruling here is, is to do with the tribunal's recommendations, uh, but can individuals or, or groups, for that matter, I guess, uh, start other legal action against the government as a result of this?
3: So there are two that have already been uh, been commenced. Uh, one is by a young man named Xavier Mouchou, who's from Quebec and had a very, very uh, sad, sad story of a, a number of placements and I think it was 15 or 16 different foster homes over his childhood. Uh, and the other is one uh, group of plaintiffs supported by the Assembly of First Nations. And so those two cases are being heard together in uh, in federal court, and they're waiting for a decision on certification. And that was one of the things the government was pointing to in its arguments with the tribunal ruling, was saying, well, look, we've got these federal court class actions. Uh, and the Caring Society's argument to that was, was, sure, that's all well and good. Those are a different tool. They compensate for something else. You know, this is Parliament has created a Canadian Human Rights Act that says victims can get compensation, and it's perfectly uh, within what the tribunal is able to do uh, for that compensation to be ordered.
0: So so what were they suggesting here? Did that, that this decision not be rendered until those cases were resolved?
3: Or did it not be rendered at
0: all, that because
3: those uh, cases existed, the tribunal didn't have
0: a role to play. That's, uh, I guess, the legal term for kicking it down the road, I guess, to try to, 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 try to uh, I guess, elongate this process, which seems ridiculous. Let me ask you, David, about, about the compensation itself. You mentioned uh, this is all under the guise of the Canadian Human Rights Act. Uh, the, the payment was ordered about $40,000 uh, per individual right now, as per the, uh, the Human Rights Act. Uh, is that sufficient, given what these families went through?
3: It's, it's certainly not, and the tribunal recognizes that in its ruling. Um, and, and really, the, the $40,000 number comes from a cap that's in the Act. The Act yeah. says the Human Rights Tribunal can go up to 20000 for pain and suffering and 20000 for willful and reckless, and the tribunal found what was really before them was a worst-case scenario. It's hard to think of discrimination that could, be, could have worse impacts than this, uh, but they were limited in terms of what Parliament uh, gave them to awards, so so it was 40000 was the number.
0: It, it just seems so insignificant based on, on the pain and suffering that was ongoing and probably continues to to, to to haunt a number of these families and as they try to move forward and they'll never put this behind them certainly. and uh, talk to us about the process now uh, forty thousand it, dollars it's okay as you get a check but what about support services? What about the things that they need to try to deal with this? I mean we're talking about uh, the, the, one of the ultimate cases of I guess a post-traumatic stress disorder uh, that families are going through right now the, the, as they find out more and more about this and, and some of them of course still trying to find out exactly what happened to some of their loved ones in situations like this. Uh, is there a commitment from the federal government to, to, to increase programming uh, for assistance like this for, for the families that are dealing with these issues?
3: That's one thing that we negotiated with the government as part of the proceedings in front of the tribunal is that that these payments have to be accompanied by supports. And so after the tribunal made its ruling in September of 2019 saying, okay, here's who's entitled and here's how much they get. uh, The party spent about a year, a little longer because of the COVID uh, situation, uh, coming up with a framework in terms of how do you find these kids uh, and families and get the money to them in in as safe a way as possible. Uh, and so there are supports that are mentioned in the framework, like mental health, uh, like deferring compensation until the age of majority for kids, uh, special provisions for folks who uh, who don't have the, the the capacity to manage their funds themselves, uh, and of course, you know, mental health supports uh, going along with that as well, as well as some elements around, uh, you know, advice in terms of how how to best use the funds, uh, which you know for some of these folks that's going to be uh, something they may not have in their everyday uh, circle, given uh, what's happened to them with the child and family services system. Uh, That, unfortunately, though, is all on hold uh, while we wait to see what happens because the framework doesn't actually come into effect uh, until the decision is final, and so we have to wait to see uh, at the end of this month if the government will appeal or not uh, before knowing if that all kicks into place.
0: There's a a mention two or three times here in the the decision uh, by the Justice about Jordan's principle. Maybe you could explain what that is. Sure. So Jordan's principle is really a concept that
3: First Nations kids uh, should get the services that they need when they need them. And Jordan was a young boy uh, living in Manitoba who who very sadly passed away uh, in hospital at the age of five, despite his doctors all agreeing when he was about two that he could go to a therapeutic uh, foster home in Winnipeg. And the federal and provincial governments argued about that because the Fed said, well, this is a provincial foster home, and the province said, well, this is a federal status Indian kid from reserve. And so Jordan couldn't leave, uh, unfortunately. And so the jordan's principle which was brought forward by jordan's family and jordan's community uh, really says that the kids get the services first and the governments argue in the background uh, about who should pay for it and so whoever is approached first should deliver the service and the tribunal has added important elements to that about recognizing that services for first nations kids and non-first nations kids aren't always going to look the same because the needs can be higher for first nations kids and the and the tribunal concluded that you can't limit yourself to the Indian Act in terms of determining who First Nations kids are. Um, if you've got a First Nation who says this kid is one of ours, uh, then that's what you listen to. You don't listen to the rules you know, developed in the 50s and 60s in the Indian Act
2: and, and adjusted
3: a bit in the 80s after the Charter came in. Uh, but that's not the source of identity for a First Nations kid. It's the community itself.
0: I, I'm not going to ask you to speak on behalf of the government. Uh, they've made their own statement, so we'll get to in just a couple of seconds. But with decisions that are rendered like this, uh, are, are we moving closer and closer uh, to some sort of a revision of, of the Indian Act, uh, this this outdated piece of legislation that seems to be the, the foundation for an awful lot of these government policies? I mean, everybody seems to agree uh, that it needs massive uh, uh, overhaul. Uh, and but we're talking the talk, and we don't seem to be moving any further towards something like that. I mean, I, I can remember doing a show back in, in the early 90s about this uh, with the Minister Nault, who was the minister at the time uh, in the Khrushchev government, and saying, yeah, we have to do something about this act, and it's just not happening. Uh, at, at what point do we take this to the next level and say, okay, maybe the legislation that, that's, you know, the foundation for this needs to be addressed?
3: Well, and, and I think that, that that's right. I mean, you kind of mentioned we and we all get older, the legislation keeps staying the same. And, uh, and and I think what's happening now is the communities are looking at this and they're saying we can't wait for the solution to come from Ottawa. And so we either need to make our own arrangements with the federal government or, as has happened here with Jordan's Principle, to challenge where the Indian Act is being imposed as a limit. And so that's what, what happened with the Caring Societies. We, we were informed that they weren't going to extend Jordan's Principle to, essentially, for lack of a better term, non-status kids. And so we challenged that at the tribunal and said that you have to include all of the First Nations kids who are disadvantaged uh, by, well, I don't think we have enough time to talk about all the reasons that First Nations kids end up facing disadvantage in our society. Uh, but recognizing if you have two First Nations kids facing the same disadvantage, and the tribunal used this example, they said, you know, you could have two half-siblings, but because they share one parent and the other parent has different status, one kid could have status and one kid wouldn't, they're in the same house, they're experiencing the same discrimination, we should be treating the two kids the same. And so, so certainly that's a very positive step forward, and uh, and until we get that overarching reform, it's going to be these step-by-step, uh, you know, piece-by-piece incremental measures to, to bring better better conditions for First Nations kids and families.
0: Uh, You mentioned at the beginning of our conversation here, David, that the government does have the right of appeal on this. They say they're reviewing the decision right now. Uh, Maybe you could outline the process here. What happens if they don't, or what happens if they do decide to appeal? Let's let's start if they don't appeal, first of all.
3: In in, in the event they don't appeal, uh, then the compensation process agreed to by the parties kicks in. And there's a period of time in which, uh, essentially, the parties will go out to the record holders and try and identify these kids and families and get in touch with them to inform them that there are these orders and that they're entitled to this compensation. Uh, and in the event they do uh, choose to appeal, uh, we'd be looking at, uh, first, an appeal to the Federal Court of Appeal, where three judges uh, would hear uh, hear the case to decide if the, the one judge from the Federal Court was right or wrong that the tribunal's orders can stand. And should the, uh, should, should the kids win again there, the government would have one last chance to go to the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, but they'd have to get permission uh, from the court to go because there's no uh, as of right appeal in this situation. The court has to agree that there's a, a sufficiently
0: important reason to hear the appeal. If we go down that road, or I guess more specifically, if the federal government goes down that road, uh, are we talking months, years before there's any resolution here?
3: I think it's certainly in the order of months, and it could could be in the order of a few years, depending on on how far it goes. It's uh, certainly a case that that the parties have been trying to move forward as quickly as possible. We we got our final orders from the tribunal in in March of this year, and here we are with a decision in September October. So that's for the legal world, actually not that not that bad. And uh, so, assuming that commitment continues, you know, we'd probably be looking at a hearing sometime in the first half of next year, and then it's up to the court how long it takes to release its decision after that
0: and in the meantime as you mentioned everything's on hold there's there's no compensation uh going out to these families what about the support services is there anything being put in place i would would like to think that that they would consider that a priority and at least move forward on that have they, have they done that
3: well certainly there are there are services available under the new approach to jordan's principle and uh, so if there's you know if there's listeners out there who need those supports flowing from uh, either experiences in the system or intergenerational uh, effects from things like residential schools and Sixty scoop uh, there are services available from the government on a case-by-case basis, but the the kind of a, a focused approach on recipients of compensation—that's uh, all waiting for the to this uh, legal legal stuff to get sorted out.
0: I mean, I know these are big numbers, and I know that the government's concerned about the you know, the, the the payout in a situation like this, but uh, uh, the problem is, is, is huge, and, and the implications of this are huge, and, you know, we're, I think as a nation, uh, just starting to educate ourselves about what went on, and, and the number of people that just turned their backs on this, others who watched it willfully and said this is the best thing for these people anyway or best thing for us anyway so uh it's it's a dark time in our history and and this is going to have to be i think one of the things that we're going to have to deal with uh sooner than later uh we'll be watching with great interest to see just how the feds respond to this decision and uh, what's going to be happening going forward david a pleasure to have you on the program thank you for taking some time with us today thanks very much again for your interest and have a wonderful morning you too David Taylor one of the lawyers representing the First Nations in this case and as we said notwithstanding the decision that was rendered uh the government can't appeal this and as uh, David told us this he, can go down well, for another month, couple of months, maybe even years before there's any compensation, that just doesn't seem right, given what's going on here and what has gone on in the past. Anyway, we'll continue to follow that story and bring you up to speed uh, as soon as we hear some new developments. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML. The Bill Kelly podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine till noon on nine hundred CHML.